Welcome to Mindset for Medical Moms. I'm your host, Courtney Given, fellow medical mom and life coach. I'm here to help you handle everything from doctor's appointments to surgery so you can feel confidence and peace as you navigate the ups and downs of medical motherhood. This podcast will share strategies and real life tools to strengthen your mindset and increase your emotional resilience. I'm so glad you're here. Let's go. Hello, beautiful medical moms. It is a special podcast day where I have a guest and I am so thrilled to have Nikayla Von Rader here, who is a pediatric sleep consultant specializing in neurodivergent children and the owner of Slumber Academy. Hi, Nikayla. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here today. I have been following you for a while and I just love everything you post because I had this big realization. I think it was the beginning of last year. I'm not really sure when pinpoint it was, but there was a point where I had this like (laughs) sleep transformation where all of a sudden I just had this like understanding of like, oh, my sleep is impacting me so much more than I'm trying to give it credit for. And I've always told myself, oh, I'm just like a night owl. I just like, you know, staying up so late and, oh, I just need my alone time. And, oh, I have to just do this or do that. And then at one point I was like, I just have to start going to bed earlier because I, my mood was being impacted, my energy levels, like so much of all these factors. And then I just like decided, okay, I'm going to go to bed an hour earlier before my normal bedtime, which sometimes was like 12 or 1am. And it like transformed so much about my mental health and my energy and like how I show up for my kids. And I've been preaching. That's like what I tell my clients. I'm like the one hour (laughs) method, just go to bed one hour earlier and you will be amazed how just one more hour of sleep serves you so much better. And so if sleep has this much impact on an adult, I can't even imagine how it's also having on our kids. So could you tell me how you got into being a sleep specialist and what makes you so passionate about sleep? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a funny story in a way. Um, I, had always been a working mom (laughs) and our life drastically changed. And I became a stay at home mom a few years ago. Um, I am not a very good, um, like relaxing and chill type of person. I feel like I need to have some kind of fiery passion project behind me. And that's also, it may, I feel like it makes me a better parent because I'm doing something for myself. Now I love my children. I absolutely love and adore them and I do everything, you know, possible for them, but having something for myself fuels my soul. (laughs) And it also just, I, it's very much needed in my life. So as I was sitting there one day, I was like, you know what? I, I feel like I want to help other, other moms. And so I got certified to become a baby and toddler sleep consultant. And you know, what's funny is I hated it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's so crazy and so sad to say, because I spent 
hours, 200 hours getting trained on, you know, sleep science and all of these things. And I, I just didn't feel passionate about it. I was like, there's something missing here. There are so many other people working with babies and toddlers. I just don't feel aligned with what I'm doing. And I had this internal battle with myself of just like, do I just stop and try to find like, what is happening right now? And, um, so essentially what ended up happening was I am in a bunch of Facebook groups and a part of a lot of different communities because my son is neurodivergent. So am I, I have ADHD. He has severe combined type ADHD along with possibly a few other things that haven't been diagnosed yet, but from being in these groups and a part of these communities, I, I really realized how needed sleep support is because 80% of these children don't sleep well and they have sleep challenges. But on the flip side of that, there's nobody there to support them. There are no, there's, there's nothing, which is crazy to me. Um, there are a, I mean, you look up sleep on Instagram, on TikTok, on Google, you will come up with a million baby and toddler sleep consultants. I mean, that is great. That is amazing. But there's an entire community of people here who are not getting helped, who, whose children don't grow out of these sleep challenges. Yes. I've like, actually seen that firsthand yeah. where like programs are like, oh, up until age three. And then they're yeah. like, <laughs> they should be good beyond that. Yeah. So myself being a part of the neurodivergent community and, you know, my son and we, I am going through a lot of the same challenges as all the parents that I work with myself, not when it comes to sleep, but when it comes to getting therapies and dealing with medications and dealing with a lot of these other things that I felt like who better to step in and support these parents than me myself. So what I did is I took my background in sleep and then I went and did further specialty training in order to really just dive into the neurodivergent brain and how, how sleep can differ for older children, how things look different and how to best support children who are not neurotypical because it's totally different. And the sleep programs that you will find out there really just, they, they kind of apply, but it's just not what is really honestly needed at the root. And so I have I have gotten so passionate about it because I feel like I am bringing help and support to the community that I am a part of, and I'm helping other moms who have the same, you know, challenges as I do. I mean, it is so hard having a neurodivergent child. It is hard to find people that um, really resonate with you, that understand what you're going through that, um, it's just very different. So I feel like being able to support these other parents and also just being able to create a support community of people that are all in the same boat and that get to support each other has had such a huge impact for so many of my clients. So I can talk about this forever because I get so passionate about it. No, that's so smart. Yeah. I 
totally see that because I think the other thing that I found as a medical mom that when I would talk to people who were very qualified with what they did, but didn't have the experience in dealing with like my subset, like it was so hard to really feel like they knew what they were talking about, like within my experience, right? Like I understood that their advice was coming from a good place or to support me, but then it was like, but you don't actually know what it's like. You don't understand the dynamics and to have someone to understand the dynamics of what you go through, I think really does make your experience working with a professional so much different. And there's just an added layer of trust there. And, um, I just love that you took your expertise and applied it to something that was right there in your life. That's exactly how I feel like I came to be a coach for moms. And um, so when we think about sleep, I feel like I kind of took took it for granted for so long, like I said. And my yeah. new motto, anytime a client tells me like, oh, well, I need alone time. Like that's the only time I get by myself. I tell them that sleep is more important. I was like, I don't care. Like, yeah, you need alone. time. <laughs> Sometimes I'm a little bit direct with my clients, but I'm like, yes, alone time is great. Find time to be alone, but do not sacrifice your sleep for it. So, um, so yeah, it is. And it, and I get it that it's a legitimate struggle because even now I'm still like, Oh, like how late can I stay up, but not sacrifice sleeping time. And I'm just like, sleep matters more and is more important than alone time. And it's more important than a book. It's more important than whatever. Tell me why sleep is so important. Why does it have this such big impact on our lives? So, and I I do kind of want to also touch base on what you had just said. So that's why I work so hard with my clients is because when you are a parent, especially working with, and just having children that have more needs than a lot of other kids, you do need that time to decompress. You need that time for yourself and you need that time to really fill your cup up so that you can feel like you can take on with a grateful heart, all the challenges that are coming for you the next day. You, you have to have that time. So it's not only about the sleep, it's about the child being able to go to sleep at a decent hour, likely around seven or eight, um, so that you can have that time from eight until 10. So you get the best of both worlds. That's what I want for all of my clients is to have your child go to sleep on time so that not only are they getting the sleep that they need, but you're getting the sleep you need and you're getting that time to yourself. So really making these sleep changes does a lot more. I mean, in general, making sleep changes has more of an impact than just the sleep itself. It impacts your child getting the sleep that they need, you getting the sleep that they need, and you being able to get that alone time to refill your cup, get that self-care time. I mean, that is so, so important. Um, When it comes to the actual sleep for children, that's the time where their bodies really rest and repair. So for some of these kiddos that are um, a little bit more medically challenged or have 
um, you know, neurodivergent brains that just don't shut down. They need that time to be able to shut their bodies and their minds off and be able to rest and recuperate because what we'll see happening is when they are sleep deprived, now you may think sleep deprived being like, oh my gosh, they slept only one or two hours at night. That's not it. Sleep deprivation can happen if they are not meeting their sleep needs, which is a child getting eight hours of sleep technically can be sleep deprived if for their age or their personality, they need 10 or 11 hours. So it's crazy to think that, yes, my child may be sleep deprived on eight hours of sleep at night. It is very, very plausible. So for these kids that are getting, not meeting their sleep needs, the things that will happen to them is they will get, they will be dealing with hyperactivity, less cognitive function, behavioral challenges, sensory challenges. I mean, there's a whole slew of like, I could rattle off a million things, but it's probably going to make people feel worse. <laughs> no, but I, I agree. Like even anecdotally, I my oldest daughter, she loves staying up at night. She loves staying up late. She like yeah. is just always wanting my other two, not so much, but she just always wants to stay up. But the, I'm not a very strict parent, but the one thing that we are pretty strict about is bedtime because of that exact reason, because it's our time to relax. It's our time to wind down. My husband and I sometimes just go even to like separate rooms and we just like chill separately. Like, and <laughs> we just have to like have our own time to decompress, but gray if I do allow her to stay up occasionally on the weekends, there is a direct correlation. Even if it's just like an hour, if their bedtime is between like seven and seven thirty. Even if she's up to like eight thirty or nine, her emotional regulation skills like take a nosedive. Wow. It is almost like immediately after she stays up that next day. I just know to prepare myself that she's going to be more emotional and it's fine every once in a while, but anytime we've like traveled for a long time or there's like a consistent disruption in her sleep, it is so hard on her to be able to function properly. And me too. Yeah. So a lot of these, a lot of you parents are living in this state every single day that you just described, Courtney, they are not getting time to themselves. They're battling their child falling to sleep for hours at night. On average, a neurodivergent parent sleeps six hours at night and has four wakes in the middle of the night to respond to their child's wakes. And then in the morning they wake up, they don't feel good. Their well-being is impacted along with their child who's emotionally not able to really respond the way that they should. And so then the whole day, not only for the parent, but for the parent and the child, the entire day is stressed because nobody is functioning at full capacity and really is responding the, the way that they should. And what else is crazy is that lack of sleep can cause ADHD-like symptoms. Wow. So... What can happen is a lot of children, it's more common than you would think, get diagnosed with having ADHD, but they really never had it. They don't have it. They just aren't sleeping, which mm -hmm. is causing them to present ADHD symptoms. Like that's how much they look almost identical to the point that children are assumed to have ADHD when they don't actually have it. They're just not sleeping. So 
that's how much lack of sleep can really impact your life to the point where a doctor will, they will present the same exact type of symptoms that you would have if you have ADHD. It is so so impactful. If a parent is in this position, they are struggling themselves because, you know, if you're in that position, you're overwhelmed, you feel exhausted and probably resentful too underneath it. Like I'm always analyzing like the layers of emotion I go through for like one tantrum. And it's like so many all at once rapid fire things. And so then they're feeling guilty. They're feeling shame. They're internalizing all these things. They're like, I should be able to do this. I should be able to figure it out. And that's why I'm constantly preaching. Hey, you don't have to have all the answers as a parent. (laughs) You can ask for help. Um, How, what is their, what do you suggest is their first step? Like, where do people begin to organize themselves and like figure out bedtime? Like, what is the first step parents should do? Okay. So the first thing, honestly, is not accepting that poor sleep is part of your child's diagnosis. Mm. It may be, it may make it harder. It does. It's not going to necessarily come easier to your child and it may be a learned skill, but it's not a part of their diagnosis. And there's things that you can do to make sleep easier. And I feel like that is a, hard thing for a lot of parents is to realize because you get into this cycle where you're just trying to survive and you feel like you're doing everything that you can do. And I'm sure that you see this a lot with your clients too, because they're overwhelmed. They're just trying to survive at this point. And then they get to the point where they feel like this is just my life. Like my child has X, Y, Z diagnosis. And so that means that they also can't sleep. And that's what I just have to deal with. And So I feel like changing that mindset is really going to be the first step and being open to hearing what it is that you can try and where, what kind of changes should be made because there's so many parents that just kind of shut off because they're in this survival mode. They kind of shut off the belief that there really is anything that they can do. And so they, it's almost just this mindset of like, this is just what I'm dealing with. And so I just need to survive and push through it. Um, so really that's where I would start is realizing it may not be, it may not be the easiest thing in the world to make these changes, but there are things that you can do and have that mindset that things can get better because they can, um, from there, what I would start doing is a sleep log. Um, and this would just be tracking everything. Um, how long it takes your child to fall asleep, what time they're finally falling asleep, when they're waking up, how long they're up for, um, what your routine looks like to get them to fall asleep. Um, what kind of responses happen when, when they are waking up, how are you responding? How do you get them back to sleep? Um, what your current pre-sleep routines look like, um, just log anything and everything, because then you can start picking out trends, um, within their sleep. So sometimes for some of these kids, especially if they have, um, like sensory challenges, 
it can be such a little thing as just like a tag on their shirt that is causing them to wake up multiple times throughout the night. It can be the fact that whatever bedtime snack they're getting could be keeping them up. It could be these smallest little things. But what you can do is if you start logging, you can start identifying some of these trends. So maybe when you look back at your logs, you notice that the nights that you give your child a bedtime snack, they sleep through the night. And the nights that you don't, they are waking. Or maybe it's a certain type of food that causes problems within their gut that upsets their stomach, which causes them to wake up. Or maybe you realize that it's a matter of dysregulation before bed or some kind of meltdown, or they sleep well after some sort of sensory activity that you did. It, it could be a number of things. So that's really where I would start is just being open-minded that yes, you can make these changes. Things can get better. And I'm going to start, just start logging, writing down everything and having that data behind you is so helpful. Yeah. It's honestly so similar to how I talk to my clients because it's like, first we have to just know that like, we're probably wrong. <laughs> you say it so much nicer. I'm like, no, but what if you're just wrong about all of this? Like what if there's nothing <laughs> set in stone? And I'm like, isn't that amazing that you're just like wrong and then you don't have to believe this. But also we have to start becoming aware of what is currently going on in our brain. And we have to become aware of what we're currently believing and thinking about ourselves and our child's diagnosis, which is the same, like gathering data of like what's currently going on. And I find that so fascinating because I would have never thought to like start just like tracking my kids routines, but the way you explained it makes total sense in terms of like, a neurodivergent child is going to have a lot of different needs and a different type of routine. And I did see on Instagram, you posted um, that like really caused me to pause. And I was like, I've never considered the pre-sleep routine. Like, obviously there's like a bedtime routine. Is a bedtime routine and the pre-sleep routine different? And can you talk to us a little bit more about what that looks like and things to do or not to do before bedtime? totally different. Okay. Totally different. So, and this is where it gets interesting because when you go and talk to a regular baby and toddler sleep consultant, they talk to you about having a consistent bedtime routine, what that consists of, and then how to put your child to sleep. That doesn't really apply. I mean, it does, but there's so much more to that when it comes to these children with medical and neurodivergent, but just different needs. It, it just, they need more than that. So the difference is pre-sleep routines is going to be things like what you're doing after dinner, but before bed. So that, that is that time frame, And then you have a bedtime routine, which should be a consistent 30 minute routine of the same things in the same order. So the reason for 30 minutes is because we want to work with the child's body to naturally produce melatonin, the sleep hormone. We want to get their body working for itself and producing this naturally. So usually what I have people start off a bedtime routine with is a sleep trigger. So what a sleep trigger is, is using one of your senses. So 
I generally like to use either touch or smell or a combination of the both. Um, it's kind of funny. I kind of correlate this to Pavlov's dog. If you remember that study at all, um, yeah. where the dog would start salivating as soon as that uh, food would come out because of the bell or the bell would ring and the dog would start salivating because they knew that the food was coming. So it's the same thing with sleep. So what I like to use is either lavender or a magnesium lotion or something like that, because it's a smell that can trick mm. that, that will tell the body that sleep is coming. So what I'll do is I will rub, like have it on, um, the wrists or the feet. If it's mixed in with a lotion, do some deep pressure touch and that kind of releases stress and anxiety and there's some bonding time with your child. But that touch and the smell, if that happens consistently every single night, then the same thing's going to happen. Your body, your child's body is going to know sleep is coming, release melatonin. Then you have your 30 minute consistent bedtime routine. And by the time your child gets into bed after that bedtime routine, they're going to know it, their child's body is going to be ready for sleep because the melatonin has just kicked in and they're going to be optimally tired and ready for sleep. So a bedtime routine generally consists of starting with a sleep trigger. Um, some parents do a bath. Some parents don't. It depends. Um, if you have a bath every night, then great. Keep it there. If you're not consistent with a bath, that's what I would move into your pre-sleep routines, um, PJs, tooth, brush your teeth, go potty. And then this is also a last chance for like any kind of curtain call. This mm -hmm. is where you want to add those things into your routine. So, um, a lot of these kids are master masters of stalling. Like they are just optimal at it. So if you know that your child is going to mom, I need water every single night, you add it into the bedtime routine so that they get water. So if they're calling out once they get in bed that they need water, you're going to be able to confidently tell them you don't need water. Cause I just gave you a sip of water. It's in your bedtime routine. And the difference is, is that you don't feel as a parent, like you're not fulfilling one of their needs. Because you never want your child, you, you don't want your child to go to bed thirsty. So you want to meet that need. So, but by adding that into the bedtime routine, what you're doing is not only are you fulfilling any need that they may have, but as a parent, you are now confident that all of their needs are met and that that is a stall tactic. And you are not going to let that happen. You're not going to let them stall. Their needs are met. You're good. Mm. So Make sure that you add and incorporate into your bedtime routine any stall tactics that they may have, any anything that they may ask for, extra hugs, extra snuggles, that's fine. Put it in your bedtime routine, not after they should be going to bed. Give them all the snuggles, all the loves. If you want to lay on their bed next to them and read a book and snuggle time, that is totally fine. Put it in the bedtime routine. So that is what a bedtime routine should be, 30 minutes consistent same activities in the same order every single night now the pre-sleep routines this is really important because this is not consistent because you don't want to get yourself into a position where you're spending two hours at night doing the same thing 
over and over and over and over and over. Cause that just sounds awful. Um, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> so this is the time where you can get some, get some variables into your evening. But at the same time, what you want to do is use this as an opportunity for regulation <clears throat> because that is so important. So if your child has, for example, severe anxiety, um, and th this can actually present itself at night, which can cause separation anxiety when they're trying to go to sleep. So if you spend time, say 10, 15, 20 minutes at night, sitting down with them one-on-one, -on -one, talking with them, making sure that they don't have any fears, no anxieties from the day, and you've had that all addressed, then they're less likely to bring that into their bedtime. And a lot of working parents, this happens for as well, because you haven't seen your child all day, your child hasn't seen you. And so that separation anxiety can really get spiked around bedtime because they don't feel like they got that connection time with you or it just wasn't enough. So being really diligent with what you're doing in that time frame to make sure that they are regulated. So another example is, um, if your child has any kind of um, like sensory needs or anything at all, whatever it may be, making sure that their needs are 100% filled during this time. So this may look like after dinner, they go and do some heavy work. So they get their wiggles out. They work real hard. They do cartwheels, jumping. You guys do a, you know, a lap around the yard outside, or you do something where they get all their wiggles out. You come back inside, maybe you play Legos together, you do some Play-Doh, or maybe you go into the kitchen and you make a bedtime snack together. Um, then you spend some time talking. Um, if your child has um, like some kind of sensory need where they really benefit from some deep pressure touch, that's the time when you want to fulfill all of those needs and really just have quality time together. And then 30 minutes before bedtime, that's when you transition into your bedtime routine. Okay. So that was a lot of in great information. <laughs> and my two thoughts or my two questions are when, or I guess oh. I should say like, what should we do like about screen time? My thoughts are on screen time. Usually in the evenings, a lot of time, you know, parents come home from work, there's dinner, bath, homework, you know, like all these things that are going, I feel like the hours from 3 PM to 7 PM go by so fast <laughs> in my house. It just is like kind of chaotic. And my kids love winding down with TV or an iPad or a game on the iPad or whatever. So when should we cut off screen time in relation to bedtime or our pre-sleep routine? So this is a very um, controversial topic. Yes. <laughs> um, now, I, I will tell you right now, I am not one of those parents that's just going to tell you absolutely no screen time. It's horrible. Like you get one or two, one of two sides, right? You get this very extreme where it's like screen time whenever. And then you get this other side that's like, I can't believe that you give your child a screen. Um, I fall like right in the middle of that where I'm all for, you know, give if that's 
if your child likes it, I mean, what kid doesn't, um, then absolutely. But if it is impacting your child's sleep or your child is having sleep challenges, this is one of the things that is going to have to change for your child's sleep. Unfortunate, but at the same time, your child's sleep is more important. So <clears throat> as a minimum, one hour before bed, preferably two hours before bed. So if your child is on, on the, you know, iPad video game, my son really likes to play Minecraft on his Nintendo switch. If he's doing that before the pre-sleep routines, then by all means you go for it, dude. Like as long as your homework's done and that's like a, a an okay time to be doing that, then by all means you go ahead and play. Um, but what happens is the blue light even if you're using blue light blocking glasses and all, all these things, it, it's still just not optimal. Um, the blue light from the um, screen actually causes your body to not produce melatonin. And it tells your body that it is not tired and it stimulates the body. So what can happen is they, it can cause them to get into bed. Melatonin hasn't been produced and they're just kind of really restless. So that's part of it. And the other part of it is it's just really stimulating for the brain and the mind. And so it, it just doesn't relax them for them to fall asleep. So that's another part of it. And then the third part of it too, is, um, when they're really stimulated and then they didn't get that quality time with your parent, with a parent, especially if you've been working, that causes a lot of sleep challenges too. So it's kind of like a threefold situation there um, where there, there's a bunch of different, you know, things that kind of cause it. But I understand because my son has combined type ADHD and he's bouncing off the walls and then you hand them, you know, a switch or a video game or TV or whatever. And it's, you can see it. They, they immediately calm down and kind of zone into their, you know, whatever they're doing. And so you feel sometimes as a parent, you're like, oh, this is relaxing for them. This is like what they want to be doing. They do want to be doing that. And it may come off or appear to be relaxing, but really behind the scenes, it's not. And it's not setting them up to be successful for sleep. So if what you're doing is working for you and your child is sleeping, you're likely not listening to this, but <laughs> that's then if it's working for you, then keep going. But if your child is having those sleep challenges at a bare minimum, one hour, preferably two, but at least one hour before bedtime, I would cut those screens off. And, um, I have seen some major, major changes in a lot of my clients with those pre-sleep routines, not having electronics in it and substituting that for that one-on-one -on -one time. And I get it. You've been parenting all day. You've been working all day. You come home and sometimes it would be nice if your kid could play a video game, you could sit next to him and just not do anything. But that's not always the best, the best way to go about it. And a lot of times this happens too, when when you're not getting that time to yourself, when you're not getting that, you know, from eight to 10 o'clock for you to kind of do your own thing, that is the time that you get to, you know, have to yourself, but your child is next to you. It, it, it definitely is a coping, coping mechanism. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but if your child isn't sleeping, 
we should kind of adjust the time frame as to when that is happening. Yeah, I love that. And I think that that's the thing is that it's like nothing parents are most likely doing is like super harmful or super horrible, right? Like I also don't take like a super extreme view in parenting, but I think that it's always good to just, it's worth taking a look at. It's worth looking at it and be like, maybe I am wrong about this video game thing or the TV thing. Um, we don't do iPad time. Like that's their like tree on the weekends is like being able to have their own personal screen. And so I make my kids, I'm such a mean mom. I make my kids share the TV all week after school. Like they can watch TV after school and they have a little wind down time or like play outside and then they do homework and then like bedtime, bath time, you know, making sure all the little things, but it's worth taking a look at to like be able to say like, maybe this timing isn't working. Maybe this thing is actually not as relaxing as I once thought. Which brings me to, I think, the most controversial thing that I'll bring up is melatonin. <laughs> I was going to say, I know what it is. I know what it is. I'm ready. <laughs> I I don't think I ever gave my kids melatonin um, unless we were traveling or we were maybe at like a someone else's house and like our whole sleep thing was off, right? Like time zones, bedrooms. And I'm like, we just all need to get to sleep. And I love that you mentioned on Instagram that melatonin is a tool, not a solution, which I loved the reframe of that. And then the pandemic hit and I was losing my mind. My husband is losing his mind. And we're like, our kids are bouncing off the walls. We had this tiny little apartment and we leaned on melatonin so much. And it wasn't until recently where I was really like, oh, we need to seriously thanks to your Instagram, honestly, to seriously <laughs> reevaluate how it was, like how much we're yeah. using melatonin. And um, I started reading more about it and just being like, you know, maybe we can just not use it. And at first it was a little bit rough adjusting, but it's been fine now. Why is it that melatonin is not a solution? And what do you suggest parents do when they are using it often or feel like there's no other option? So I think I want to preface this by saying, don't feel bad right now. If you are giving your child melatonin, do not feel like I'm coming in here trying to, you know, guilt trip anybody or, you know, I don't want anyone to feel like they're a, like, I don't want to come off. Like I am, you know, scolding a parent for using melatonin or saying it's bad. Like you've been doing this all wrong because it is such a touchy, touchy, touchy topic. Um, and a lot of parents are in this survival mode where they know that sleep is so important that they're doing whatever that they can do or know how to do or gets recommended to them for sleep. So I feel like there's a lot of offense that comes from me talking about talking about this topic sometimes because they're like, I'm over here tr just trying to do my best and you're telling me that that's not good enough. So I don't want to come off that way. And I know that you're just trying to do your best, but I think what's going on right now is that it has become this melatonin has become this thing 
that is so widely recommended, what it is has kind of been downplayed, right? Like you can get it in a gummy, you can walk into Target and you can pick it up and it's in a gummy and and a huge bottle. So how is it bad if I can go into Target and grab this thing, a gummy for my kid off the shelf? It can't be bad, right? And you, you put up a little post on Facebook or wherever my kid's not sleeping. 99% of every single person on that post is going to tell you, just give them melatonin. That's the problem. Answered all your problems. Just give them melatonin. That's where for me, I'm like, "Eh, no, (laughs) I I knew it was getting a little bit bad when my eight-year-old was asking for it. And she's like, can I just have melatonin? And I'm like, oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm creating a dependent child. And I was like, yeah, this is not a great way to have a sleep routine. Because as a child myself, I did not have like a lot of structure or like supervision in terms of like my daily routine. And for a lot of different reasons. But looking back, I did not have very good sleep hygiene. And like a lot of my emotional regulation and all of the things that I have had gone through through childhood I'm like being able to pay attention to your kids and being able to notice those nuances is seemingly maybe in the big picture doesn't feel like that important like okay I'm getting my kids in bed I'm you know giving them dinner I'm doing all these things but then I look at it I'm like But these little things could be the difference in terms of how much less overwhelmed you could be in the long term, because it won't feel like such a big fight. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot more implications than is put out there for taking melatonin as well. So for example, it's just seen as this thing that's like a vitamin, right? Mm -hmm. But The issue is that we don't have a lot of long-term studies or data on the implications of using melatonin in the long run. It is still a hormone. You are still utilizing a synthetic hormone, essentially, um, but we don't have a lot of data on the long-term effects. So this is where it gets kind of scary. Um, there, there are some studies done and they're not saying anything like conclusively, like it will do X, Y, and Z. But the speculation right now is that, um, long-term use of melatonin is actually thought to affect growth, um, sexual development, um, puberty, and a lot of other things, um, because it is still a hormone. Um, we just don't have that long-term data to show us kind of what's going on. Um, and you know, it's also thought that your body could possibly stop producing melatonin naturally. Um, there it is starting, doctors are really starting to kind of take this seriously now because of the massive growth spike that we've seen likely since around COVID, um, of the amount of people, you know, young people too taking melatonin, um, it's now becoming something that's like, oh shoot. Okay. We really need to come up with 
a definitive answer to this. Um, a lot of doctors are saying still like it's not a long-term solution, um, can be used as a tool, but there could be some really big implications for the body um, if it is used in the long run. But most of the time, 90, like 95 or more percent of the time, what's happening is melatonin is being used instead of the behavioral work behind the sleep. So the, the best way I could use to describe this is almost like trying to use a diet pill instead of diet and exercise is kind of what is happening with melatonin. And um, <clears throat> there's a lot of implications that could happen from using melatonin in the long run. And some of these kids are getting started taking it before they're even two years old. So it can't, it, it could get very, very scary. And not only that, but your, your child isn't developing any of these good sleep habits. They're relying on something to go to sleep. So let, you know, for example, let's say that your child's been just taking melatonin to fall asleep for five years. Once you <clears throat> take that away, it may be really, really, really difficult. What you could be dealing with is like 15 times harder to try to get them to sleep because they've been relying on something else to do it for them. So that's one problem. Another thing is because it is so widely recommended, a lot of people don't know that every child reacts differently and that not every child reacts well to it. For example, there has been cases of severe anxiety stemming from melatonin, behavioral challenges stemming from melatonin, severe, severe nightmares stemming from melatonin, but nobody's talking about it. No one's sharing that experience. So I, I saw a video the other day, this mom, and she had posted a, a video of her child just full on meltdown. It just, she was just like, this has never happened to me before. Like, how, how do I stop this? What is going on? Like just very frazzled because she's like, I've never seen my daughter act like this before. Like what the heck? So I jumped on and was like, by chance, did you just start melatonin? And she was like, um, funny you say that. Yes. Last night was our first night, you know, starting that. And I was like, well, that melatonin could cause your daughter's, you know, what, what you're going through right now with her meltdown, that could be the cause of that. She was like, what? No way. Yeah. So immediately she stopped the melatonin and the, that cleared up and she never had it again. Wow. Um, so melatonin okay. has all these implications, definitely not something that we should be using regularly. And I think that when it comes to melatonin in my mind, it's like, I just see it as a crutch, right? Like, it's just something that is yeah. like, not an actual solution. It's like, you're just leaning on something masking, like you said, maybe a behavioral need, maybe a sensory need, maybe a connection need. And I think this goes to show all of our, all of the parents out there, your exhaustion is so real because parenting is so much work. Like it's so much effort. 
And I think I often talk about this with my husband, like the way motherhood was described to me, the way parenting was described to me, I had no idea the depth of effort and like hands-on work that parenting involves. And so I get it. Like I totally get it. And I think that it's important to look at, you know, our decisions when it comes to sleep routines and choices with our kids, because you just never know what something is that you're like, oh, I thought this was a tool or a solution to the sleep problem. In reality, it's just covering up and masking so many other levels of needs within our family. Um, what do we do? So in my medical mom, heart mom world, lots of times my clients will have a planned have a plan. or an unplanned hospital stay. And what do they do when they have a consistent routine or are working on a good bedtime routine for uh, an autistic child or an ADHD child, and they are end up in the hospital, whether it's planned or unplanned? How do we deal with those kinds of disruptions in the sleep bedtime routine? Does it matter yeah. or like, cause in the hospital, there's like no sleep, like not for the kid, hardly for the kid, definitely none for the parent. Like, it's just, you're interrupted like every three to four hours by a nurse. You're interrupted even in between those by people coming in with testing and ultrasounds and blood draws. And it's just like, not to mention all the beeping, all the noise. It's just the sleep is not happening in the hospital, at least not restful sleep. So you come back out of the hospital and you're literally so exhausted. Your kid still has to recover. What do you suggest for parents when that pattern is disrupted? Okay. So the first thing, give yourself grace because yes, sleep is important, but this is like a huge, a huge life thing, life change. Something is going on to, to where you're put in the hospital. Give yourself grace. And really the only thing that you can do at this point is be consistent as, as consistent as you possibly can. Um, so sleep environment is also really, really important. So when you're at home, making sure that your child has, um, certain emotional attachment things, using white noise, uh, a lot of these things, right? So what you can do is when you go to the hospital, try to recreate as much as you can, your child's sleep environment. That can really, really help. Um, so for example, if you use white noise, it might even cover up the sound of, I mean, a little bit, but it might make the beeping a little bit more of a background noise. They're gonna have that comfort noise to them, which is the white noise. They use it at home. That indicates you know, sleep within their sleep environment. So when you turn that sound machine on at the hospital, it can give them a sense of calmness because it sounds exactly like it sounds at home, minus a few more beeps, but it can bring comfort to them. Um, the same thing with their bedding. Um, if you have a, if they have a special blanket, if you don't have one, I recommend you get one um, because then you can bring it to the hospital with you. And that's, again, another sense of comfort and consistency within the sleep environment. So trying to recreate your child's sleep environment at the hospital is really helpful. And then sticking with what you're currently doing. So 
sometimes these kind of transitional periods cause some, I wouldn't say bad sleep habits, but sleep crutches to come up. So for example, you're really upset because as anybody would be as a parent that your child is in the hospital and they're, you know, they're dealing with whatever it is that they may be dealing with. So what you might end up going over there and doing is rubbing your child's head or scratching their back while they're falling asleep. Um, and you just stopped doing that at home. They just started sleeping at night. And then now they're, you're kind of falling back into using this sleep crutch. And so when you go back home, it's going to be a really hard transition to get back into those routines. Um, so what I would recommend is trying to stay consistent as much as possible. Um, like I said, as much as possible, give yourself grace because sometimes, you know, if your child is crying and sobbing, you're not going to want to just sit there and say, go to sleep, you know? So try to be consistent. And if you finally got your child to sleep independently at home, and if you're capable of continuing that at the hospital, awesome. If you are not capable, then give yourself grace and put basically what you'll be doing is putting yourself in a position to basically just be restarting the process when you get home. Inconvenient, yes, but it does go much easier the next time. So when you would get back home, you if you have very, very strong routines, which is why routines and, and schedules are so important because you can get pulled out of your environment like that and go through this really rough traumatic thing. You can come back home. And since you're back in your home sleep environment, you can easily, as long as it's, you know, guided and pushed towards that way, you can easily fall right back into what you were doing before. Um, which is why that is so, so important because it makes that transition piece so much easier. Whereas if you're all over the place and then you're back in your child's room and you're laying with them for three hours while they're trying to fall asleep and you're back in there 15 times in the middle of the night, it just makes it that much harder. So by having a very, very solid sleep plan and routines that you follow, when they get back home and you're showing them that, no, we are at home, this is what we're doing, they're just going to fall right back into it that much easier, which not only makes it easier on you, but easier on them as well, because they know what to expect. It makes it less stressful for them too, because what just happened by taking them, <clears throat> by them being in the hospital or in any kind of in, you know, environment like that, it takes them into this sense of unknown. Um, it can spike a little bit of anxiety. And then when they get back home, if they know exactly what's going to happen and when, and that they have their routine, it is very settling. It is very calming for them. And they honestly, they may not act like they enjoy it, but their body responds very, very well to it. What when it comes to putting kids down to sleep, you said laying down, I lay down with all my kids and it's exhausting. It's a lot. I think my husband, we take turns putting our kids down. He like sits in the room while they all go to sleep, but there is something, I think he calculated up like how many hours he spent yeah. over the last like eight years sitting next to a child going to sleep. How do you handle that transition? If someone is currently like me, 
laying with their child or sitting in their room, what do you suggest to transition out of that kind of not independent sleeping? Yeah. So independent sleep is really important because it's a skill. It is, especially for these children that are older. Um, now I'm not talking about necessarily infants, a lot of infants and neurotypical younger toddlers, they will grow out of this and their sleep challenges and they will, you know, they will start sleeping fairly easily. If you have a toddler with sleep challenges, it's usually just a matter of like implementing some strong behavioral, um, routines and being very consistent and concise. Um, but some of these older kids, especially neurodivergent children, they have some more, um, needs. And so sleep can be a very much a learned skill. It's not something that they grow out of. Um, so independent sleep is very, very important because for example, you, you and I, we wake up every time we go through our sleep cycle in the middle of the night, you likely do not remember it. I don't remember it unless you have to, you know, get up and go pee or something like that. It happens, but your eyes maybe flutter open for a millisecond. You fall immediately back to sleep and you don't even know that you woke up. But what can happen for these kids that you are sitting next to them, you're rubbing their back, all of these things. Um, <clears throat> I will say if it's working for you and you enjoy doing it and it's not a problem and you don't mind getting up to respond, you know, to do all this again in the middle of the night, then just keep doing it. I mean, but when it's a problem and it's a problem for your sleep and for your child's sleep, this is where this independent piece can be really important because what can happen is your child is going through their sleep cycles in the middle of the night, right? Their eyes barely flutter open, but they don't fall back to sleep. They don't just close and they don't fall back to sleep because they need you. They need yeah. you to come in and do whatever it is that you have been doing to put them back to sleep. So whether that is they need your touch, they need you to sit next to them, they need your presence, but it also causes them to get stimulated because instead of just uh, oh, barely opening their eyes, closing them and falling back to sleep, now their eyes are open all the way. They either A, start yelling for you, mom, come in here, I woke up, or B, they get themselves out of bed and come and get you. Um, which is less sleep taken out of their evening and yours. And now you're sitting there in the middle of the night with them. So it's not so much a, like a lack of response. Like we don't want to respond to them. It's not anything like that. It's that we want to give them these independent sleep skills so that they do sleep through that. And they're not waking up and having these 20 minute wakes, or you're not having 20 minute wakes multiple times throughout the night that they're very confident and secure and even less anxious. We want to give them the confidence and the skills to be able to love the sleep that they are getting, see the value in it and be confident with those skills. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And this is totally making me rethink all of my routines. Like my kids sleep pretty well, but there are some things that I'm like, oh, I maybe, cause now I'm thinking like, oh, I've just been wrong about this. It's so easy how your brain is like, oh, this is just how my kid is, or this is just how yeah. it is, right? Like this is just how the sleep routine works. And 
now I'm like, oh, maybe I could revisit these issues and try a few things on my end and maybe those things would get resolved. I, my last question is, what do you do when kids share a room? Because I know that there could be one great sleeper, one neurotypical child, and then another not typical child or or even a mix of lots of combination. I have three daughters and they all share the same room. So I understand what it's like when one kid can't sleep and then two others are like crying in response because one is making yeah. a, you know, a big thing. So what are your tips for handling shared bedrooms? So there's a few ways to respond to that. Um, the first being that is also why independent sleep is so important because if they're waking up in the middle of the night, they're then waking up their siblings, waking you up. And now it's turned into a whole thing, a whole thing. And it is, it's impacting the entire family sleep. So making sure that they have those independent sleep skills so that they're not waking anyone up and they just fall right back to sleep. That impacts more than just them. It impacts everybody at that point. Um, the second is if your child has ADHD, I really, really, really strongly recommend trying your best to give them their own sleep environment because their minds can get distracted by anything. And when I say anything, I mean, if you're hearing a sibling's breathing, your mind is like D -d 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 the whole time. It just like can't calm down. Um, Obviously, that isn't realistic for every single family and every single family's home to give, you know, one child their own room. Um, if you have these challenges and you have an open guest room or you have something to where you can make that change, I recommend making that change because it can be very impactful, especially if your child is easily distracted and has a hard time settling because just having that sibling in the room is a huge, major distraction. If in the event that you still have to share a room um, because that just doesn't work for your situation, what I recommend doing are making some modifications like um, <clears throat> using a bunk bed. And it may seem silly because maybe they're older or, or whatever it may be, but putting curtains up around the bunk bed, or if they're younger having, there's like this little bunk bed tent that you mm -hmm. can get. Um, so it gives them their own sleep environment that kind of blocks them out from everybody else. Um, and then you can use a sound machine or something like that in their own sleep environment to kind of create their own little bubble for them. Um, you could even use room devices. There's a few different ways that you kind of go about it, but I really recommend getting your child involved so that they're really, really excited about it and letting them know this is for you. Here is, you want to give them a sense of control within their sleep environment, get them really excited about it and um, kind of pull them into the process. And um, that helps as well. But I would try to kind of give them their own space, even if it's a, a shared room, give them their own little space so that they aren't having distractions from their siblings. Um, now, if there's an age gap, like you have an infant 
in with an older child, you can have the infant go to sleep earlier and then have the older child come in so that the infant isn't keeping the older child awake. You, so you can kind of stagger bedtimes. You can even do that with some of the other kids if that works out, if you have a little bit of an age gap. Um, you can adjust their schedules to have one be asleep before the other one comes into the room that can help as well. But having that independent sleep piece is really important because if they're waking up screaming in the middle of the night, then everybody's up screaming in the middle of the night. So, um, room sharing can be done. It can just get a little bit tricky if your child has ADHD or is very, very distractible in the middle of the night. Yeah. And it sounds like it all kind of just like builds on top of each other, because if they're getting distracted and all of their, they have a lack of, I love that you describe sleeping as a skill, because I feel like it's the perfect way to describe creating those habits for sleep hygiene. And just like, even as an adult, like I had to teach myself good sleeping habits and I had to, it was a skill. It was a skill that I had to learn. And it's just so crazy that you think of sleep as something just like, oh, you just go to sleep and that's it. And it's just like, there's so much more to it, but it feels like as you are teaching your children, the skills of sleeping and managing their needs, both physically and emotionally, the room sharing piece kind of can come together as you're stacking all of those skills and looking at all of the other pieces of the sleeping puzzle. So, um, that is extremely helpful. And, I am so grateful that you came on here to share all of your wisdom. It was all so fantastic. Where can my audience find you and tell us about the Slumber Academy? So you can find me on either Facebook or Instagram under Slumber Academy. Um, I also have, I'm really, really excited because I'm coming out with a new um, it's, it's going to be more of like a group coaching program, but there is opportunities to get that one-on-one -on -one piece in there. So it, cause I've, I've been just having a one-on-one -on -one program thus far, which has worked out really, really well, but I want to bring in something that is also affordable for a lot of people and also brings in a lot of other resources. So I'm really excited about it. This should be launched within the next two or three weeks. Um, but basically the way that this program is gonna work, it's called Sleep Restored. And it is going to be through modules that you get to do some learning a, a lot about the things that we've talked about, but it also includes a support group. I'm bringing in guest expert speakers and other things that doesn't, that I don't have expertise in. Um, so I want to build an entire community of parents who are all going through and um, I will be in the support group and doing almost like little mini coachings. So as you're going through these modules and for example, let's say you're going through the sleep environment module and um, you can come in the group, post a picture of, hey, this is what my child's sleep environment looks like. Can you give me any feedback? I'll jump on with a Loom video and say, yes, looks great. Or why don't we make changes here and do kind of mini coachings through that. Um, as well as you'll have other parents who have 
already nailed down their sleep environment and maybe they'll have feedback for you too. Um, I'll bring in guest experts to chat with a group about all sorts of things from different relaxation strategies to, um, you know, maybe how to do uh, just emotional regulation tips or how to just all sorts of things so that all of these pieces that are um, impact sleep can be just, you can get so much more support than just from an entire community. So I'm really, really excited about it. I have um, an entire resource library that's going to be attached to it that uh, my current one-on-one clients also get right now, but um, it has um, a lot of anxiety workbooks, visual aids, um, all like sleep stories. It has all sorts of things combined in there. Um, it is going to be awesome. So I'm really excited about it. So keep a lookout that is launching at the beginning of April. Awesome. That sounds amazing. It sounds so great. Um, once again, thank you so much. And I will link her Instagram and her Facebook page in the show notes and all of the amazing links will be things we've referenced will be there. And, um, yeah, I hope everyone goes and checks out Nikayla's Instagram. She has so many great tips and tools. I am constantly learning new things. So I highly recommend that. Um, thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week. All right. episode is over but there's so much more you can get from our facebook group come to the mindset for medical moms facebook group community at the link in the show notes and discuss all the things about the podcast also you can get coached for free come and ask me questions and connect with fellow medical moms i hope to see you there thank you so much